but actually the, the, the reception afterward. Maybe it was the flowers and the decor, and you see young men walking down the aisle that are in suits now, who've been wearing shirts and a t-shirt, and you say, man, I've never seen that guy clean up like that. Maybe it's something like you really enjoy the food that's served at the reception. You know those things that are wrapped in bacon? I don't know what they're called, but I love them. I had 12. Maybe, maybe it's the dancing at the reception. You really enjoy that. Or maybe you just enjoy watching the dancing. Maybe the daddy-daughter dance. A couple of Decembers ago, Dickie Swanson set the bar very high. And I think he had to have reconstructive surgery on his knee afterward, but if it had gone viral, I'm sure it would have broken the internet. So, what do you enjoy? Having been a pastor and had the privilege to see many a groom and a bride come together, one of my favorite moments is this. I'm up here with the groom, and you see the bride get to the end of the aisle. And it's that brief pause, and I look at him, and I see the joy and the excitement as he is anticipating receiving something good from the hand of God. The God who says, I'm the man, I'm the one who created marriage. I'm the one who brought the, the woman to the man. And I have said, it's very good. But maybe you picked this up too in our songs. Our own Lord Jesus comes to earth as the true bridegroom. The one who comes to seek his bride, that is lost men and women, and restore them to himself expensively. He gives himself, goes to the cross, in order that he might redeem us, restore us, and make us his own. It is an amazing thing. It is the greatest love story ever told. And then he as he has betrothed us to himself, he's going to return one day and take us to himself where we will experience fullness of joy and we will be with him forever. Today in our Come and See series, we find Jesus at a wedding. It's not his own. But what he does reveals a little bit more about who he is as the Messiah and what he's like as the true bridegroom. So let me pray for us, and then we'll see what God has for us in his word. Lord, we're so grateful that you came to seek and save us and to make us your own. And Lord, if there's somebody here that has not made that decision, who has not said, Jesus, come take me as your bride and make me your own forever, I pray you be working in his or her heart and doing in him or her what they cannot do themselves, that they might be born again into Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last couple weeks, again, in this Come and See series, Jesus has been revealed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world through John the Baptist. And then last week, we saw that He is the one who truly sees us, as Jesus saw Nathaniel under the tree. He knows us and who we are and wants to be known by us. And also, He is the one who brings heaven to earth. So that's what we saw in the last couple weeks. But now He's gathered about 
four or five disciples to himself. We've seen Andrew, Simon, Philip, Nathaniel, and some people think that even the Apostle John has been called into this group. He just hasn't written himself into the story yet. But up to this point, Jesus has really not entered into public ministry. He hasn't done anything to really call attention to himself or set himself apart. But now he's going to this wedding with his, his disciples. And it's about 20 miles from Capernaum where Jesus sets up headquarters west. And this is all about to change. And so we find that Jesus shows up to this wedding and his mother is there. She seems to be helping with this reception. She's aware that things aren't going so well in the back. We're running out of wine. Now, wedding feasts in the first century could go almost all week long. And the responsibility to supply wine was that of the grooms. So if you run out of wine on the first day, that's a scandal. This is not good public relations, so to speak. Because the whole community is, is invited to this. And there's even evidence out there that relatives of the, of, the, of the bride could even sue the groom for putting this new bride in such a poor public light. Jesus, Mother Mary, could see something needed to be done, so she went to the most resourceful person that she knew, her son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 here in chapter 2 of John. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. So first of all, do we come to the true bridegroom with whom we can share our needs and wants? Now as you kind of first look at this interaction, it doesn't seem very respectful, does it? Woman, what, what do you, why do you want to involve me? Now, I will tell you, if I spoke to my mom that way, I'd probably be turning the other cheek very quickly. But we have to understand, and you know, we're translating from Greek into English, this is probably more like along the lines of lady or ma'am. And tone matters, doesn't it? But he does say to her, my hour is not yet come. Maybe Jesus is just going, okay, I'm right on the precipice of my public ministry, and I just want to attend this wedding and enjoy it. I don't want to have to involve myself. I will say as, as a pastor sometimes, I don't want to have to do anything. I just want to show up and enjoy an event. So maybe that's a little bit what's going on with Jesus. Or maybe so that he's asserting his separation from his mom. That she is losing claim over him. He's no longer in Nazareth taking care of her. He has ventured out to do the will of his heavenly father. And that loyalty takes precedent over that of his earthly mother. Or number three, Jesus knows that once he does something and it goes public, there's no turning back. There's no undinging the bell. The clock starts. And that clock is eventually heading to the cross. 
Rumors will spread. He'll have a public ministry. He'll be a public figure. And everything he does will be scrutinized. His life will never be the same. Yet, his mother comes to him on behalf of this couple to meet a need. Now, is it a life or death need? Not really. I mean, you know, you might get a bad reputation in town for a season. Yeah, that's the couple that ran out of wine at the reception. But is anyone going to die? No. Is anyone going to lose their life? No. But Mary knows her son. And she comes to him on behalf of this couple. And here's what I want you to know. There's no need or want that is so small that we can't bring it to our true bridegroom. Every once in a while, my wife asks me to do something. And sometimes I'm more receptive than others. Sometimes I might grouse or roll my eyes. But in truth, I want to love my wife And if I can do it, if I can do what she's asking, I eventually do. My response to my wife, whom I try to love, is imperfect. But this perfect bridegroom, how much more does he care for us when we come to him with our needs and our wants? Now, this is not a blank check. We're not turning Jesus into our genie. But as our bridegroom, He is the lover of our souls. He's the protector. He's our provider, and we can bring everything to Him. Whether it's our concern for a loved one that needs to know Him, needs to put their faith in Him, or whether it's the stress we're facing at work, or maybe it's our health that we're struggling with and there seem to be no answers, or maybe it's just something a little more simple, like, Jesus, I need a, I need a parking space. Have you prayed for a parking space? I've seen him be very kind to me. That doesn't mean he always gives me right up front, but he does provide. Or maybe it's, Lord, I I need you to guide the scissors of my barber and get a good haircut. And some barbers need more prayer than others. But we can bring all those things to him. And it's okay. Mary's faith in her son is so great that she says to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And that leads to the next point. To trust the true bridegroom with your needs and wants. See, Mary just says, do whatever he says, and she walks away. She doesn't stick around and concern herself. So so how are you going to do this, Jesus? How are you going to make this happen? She's not anxiously trying to figure out how he's going to do it. Because she knows her son. She knows him intimately. And of all people, she knows that he is indeed the true Son of God. The seed of the Holy Spirit. God in the flesh. And nothing is too impossible for him. I'm not saying that I think Jesus did all sorts of miracles in the house, but I'm certain along the way she's just going... Oh, yeah, I'm reminded of who you are and the special charge that she was given to raise him. She just says, do whatever he says. He's got this. But I want to ask the question, how about you and me? 
How about you and me? When we bring those things to Him, we come to Him with our needs. Are we entering with a confidence that He hears us and will answer? Or do we in truth kind of say, well, maybe He'll do something. I'm not really sure. But we're already planning for how to meet that need if He doesn't come through. If he doesn't make it happen, especially if he doesn't make it happen the way we think it ought to happen. You know what's interesting? I think sometimes our familiarity and, and our boldness in coming before our daddy, our heavenly father, in prayer because of the son, sometimes we don't allow him to be God. So I want this and I want it this way. And if it doesn't happen that way, we get disappointed. Are we allowing the Father to be God? Are we allowing Jesus to be our Lord? And I'm not a name it and claim it prosperity preacher, you guys. If you've been here, you know that. But his words are true. And I think he's much more generous than we believe. Matthew, Jesus says this, 7, seven and 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks, receive. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. It doesn't mean in the process, God doesn't ask us to be proactive or take action or do a little homework. But ultimately, our dependence is upon Him rather than our own ability, our own strength. And sometimes when we know that God is leading us some way, but we decide that we're going to help God out and we're going to make things happen because of our ability, our strength, some things don't go the right way. You know, if you're familiar with the patriarch Abram before he became Abraham, and his wife Sarai. He's been promised a son. He's been promised a son whose descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Yet at a certain point, and it's, they're waiting for certain, at a certain point they get tired of waiting. and So they decide to help God out and bring Sarai's maidservant, Hagar, to Abraham. And we're going we're to have the son of promise through Hagar. And if you know the rest of the story, things don't go so well. And God doesn't necessarily shield us from the consequences of those things. How many times can we just say, Lord, this is what I need, this is what I want, but I'm trusting you to make it happen. I'm trusting you to orchestrate these things rather than to, for me to orchestrate them and make them happen. Our bridegroom cares about us. He meets our needs. And if he says no, and no is a good answer sometimes, it's a, it's a gracious answer, his grace will be sufficient. Are we willing to believe we can bring those things to him and that he is gracious and that he is generous? You see, our true bridegroom is not stingy with us. Pick it up again at verse eight through six through eight in chapter two. Nearby stood six stones, stone water jars, the kind used 
by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did. Now let's not pretend we don't know where this is going. They fill these water jars with water, and then they dip it out, and this water is going to turn into wine. Jesus provides 120 to 150 gallons of premium wine. He did it because he's the Son of God. That's a lot of wine. I drive a pickup truck that has a 32-gallon gas tank. That's meaning filled almost five times. Now, I don't recommend that you drink wine out of my gas tank. But my point is, God has backed up the truck. He's backed up the truck and been very generous. Very kind. He has more than amply supplied, supplied this couple so this party could keep going on for a week. But there's no formula here. It's all about the relationship with the bridegroom. And he oftentimes gives us more than we ask or imagine. Think about Jesus feeding the 5,000 or even the 4,000. He feeds them, and then there are leftovers. There are 12 baskets left over after feeding the 5,000. There are seven baskets left over after the feeding of the 4,000. He is generous. He doesn't always give us all that we want, but He does give us all that we need. He is not stingy. But I wonder sometimes when we're coming to Him if we're stingy with what He wants to provide. I don't mean we're trying to be stingy toward others, but we just don't think He's going to, to meet us. And we're, we're preparing that He's going to be stingy or not give us anything at all. Perhaps that's more of a reflection on our character than it is upon our bridegroom. The next thing is to taste that the bridegroom is good and satisfies. So let's pick it up at verse 9. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called to the bridegroom aside and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much. But you have saved the best till now. In this account, Jesus provides a superior wine than that which was served at the very outset of the banquet. What does this say again about the nature of Jesus. The head waiter, he doesn't know where this came from, but he makes commentary that it's common practice to serve the good stuff first, right? And then when those who overindulge have their uh, senses a little bit dulled, we'll bring out the cheap stuff. Just keep feeding them because they just can't discern anymore what's going on. But again, he says, but you have saved the best last. Now I'm going to stop right now for a second and acknowledge the elephant in the room. Jesus is making wine. Okay? 
And I know for some of us, we have families where alcohol has been abused. It's been an, an addiction. It's hurt. And I understand that. I understand that. And it probably doesn't make any difference that the wine that Jesus served was probably had a quarter of the amount of the alcohol that we have in today's wine. I mean, you can still get drunk. That's true. But Jesus is not against the use of alcohol. It's about getting drunk and being under the influence of that. And some of us, we should just, we should forego it. Because it's not, it doesn't bring anything healthy and good in our lives. But ultimately, this is not about, this is not a passage about drinking or not drinking. But rather, it's about the goodness of the bridegroom. I love Psalm 34, 8 that says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus, the bridegroom, gives us good things for us to enjoy. And they're intended to lead us to know the goodness of Him. That's what they're intended to do. That's where His good gifts are to lead us. But if we focus ourselves on just the good things that He provides and try and stuff our souls with all those good things, then honestly we become spiritual gold diggers. Because all I want God for, I want Jesus for, is what He can give me rather than Himself. And here's the tragedy. If that's our heart habit, then we are missing the goodness of our true bridegroom and knowing Him. If you've been in this room, you've heard me quote this verse many times, and I'm going to do it again because it's true. Psalm 16.2, where David discovers, he says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord, and apart from you I have no good thing. And if I could wave a magic wand over this congregation, I would wave it and make that true of your, of your hearts. That there's no material blessing, no relationship, no experience, no possession that you would gain that would be better than knowing Jesus and tasting and see that He is good. It's what David said in his Psalm 63.3, because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's where Jesus is leading us in this passage. It's what He's trying to reveal to us in this passage. This is pointing, this good gift of this wine is pointing towards satisfaction in Him. But you know what's funny? Is this wine doesn't get served until the end of this banquet. Interesting. Until they've run out of wine. That's kind of what life is like right now. We're betrothed to the true bridegroom. But the best is still yet to come, folks. The best is still yet to come. You see, in the Old Testament, the vision of flowing wine was a, a picture of what would happen when the Messiah came 
and made everything right from an Old Testament perspective. Amos chapter 9, verses 13 through 14 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. And I will bring my people Israel back from exile, and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them, and they will plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they will make gardens and eat their fruit. This prophecy is an indication of the good things the goodness that the Messiah will bring when He reigns and rules. And we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So I want to encourage you to look forward to that rather than trying to stuff your hearts and your souls and your minds with the things of this earth. I'm not saying that you ought not take part of anything in this earth, but what I'm saying is we're trying to fill a God-shaped vacuum with the things of this earth. We need to be looking forward to the arrival of our bridegroom. Because when he arrives, he will bring the best. And so as I conclude this, I want to ask the question. Verse 11 says, what Jesus did there here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed him. Do you believe in the true bridegroom? And if you do, are you truly His? Do you believe in the true bridegroom? And if you do, are you truly His? Again, this is Jesus' first public sign. The word gets out about what happened up in Cana. And the disciples are excited. And the Scripture says His glory was revealed. Basically, His power and His identity. And they believe Him. They've seen a miracle. But you know what happens? They're going to see lots of miracles. And yet at certain points, their faith is still challenged and questioned. Because he says things that they don't expect. And he does things that they don't expect. And at the end, he's on the cross. And they're wondering, did I hitch my wagon to the wrong horse? I think some of us would say, Oh, if, if I just see this miracle, then I believe. No, you wouldn't. Might be a moment where you see God, but the question is, has He done a work in your heart? Has He drawn you to Himself? And I'm going to ask the question, do you believe in the true bridegroom? And if you do, are you His? Because I think some of us in this room might be dating the bridegroom, but we're not so sure we want to commit our lives to him. We want to keep our options open in case something else comes along. Or even worse, you have kind of committed your life to him, but you're having an affair with this world. And that makes us spiritual adulteresses. And maybe you are hearing this for the first time. And if so, I want to say there is a true bridegroom that wants to make you his own. To give you life and give it to the full. And to change 
your life here and change your trajectory for all of eternity. And he came and he spent himself expensively for you. And maybe today is the day where you become his. And you say, I do. Because he wants to change you and make you his own. Rather than to just face the wrath of a holy God. Maybe today you can be his. And if that's true of you, I'm going to be praying at the end here. And you can join me. But do we believe that Jesus was the true Messiah? Do we believe that he was the true bridegroom? Because it makes all the difference of how you experience him. Because we can come to him with faith. That we can bring all of our needs and all of our wants before him. And to trust him with those things. We don't have to figure it out. And know that he is generous He oftentimes meets us with more than we can ever ask or imagine. And to know that He is good. He gives us good things, but ultimately that's to lead us to know His goodness for who He is. A true bridegroom has come for us. And He's coming back. I hope that you know that He is good. And He wants to meet you all that he is let me pray and bobby will you and the worship team make your way up here so lord jesus i thank you for this great picture that you painted in at this wedding hmm. give us grace to know that you, we can bring everything that concerns our hearts to you that you hear us we can trust you with those things and that you graciously and generously meet us in those things. And if there's somebody here today that needs to put their faith in you, would you draw that person to yourself? And if that's you, brother or sister, I'm just going to pray for you right now. And You just want to pray these things in your heart. What I'm going to say are not magic words, but they are the response of a sincere heart that wants to respond to the Messiah to God's Son, to the Savior, and the true Bridegroom. So just pray these things in your heart. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came for me. I thank you that you gave yourself for me on the cross. Forgive me of my sins. and Come in and make your dwelling within my heart. Change me. Make me your own. And I know you will, because your word has promised it, Lord. To as many as received him, even to those who believe in his name, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. So do what you promised, Lord Jesus. Give life, give eternal life, and give us hope of an amazing future with you. And in the meantime, help us to continue to taste and see that you're good. I pray that you convince our hearts of that, Lord. It's in your name I pray these things. Amen.